I'm Sandy Swallow. I'm Okalala Lakota and Northern Cheyenne. I've been an artist for over 30 years and through my artwork have portrayed my heritage. Now I'm starting a brand new venture called Lakota Link and I'm here to share with you and I hope you enjoy it. Lakota Link. Greetings from the home of the Seven Council Fires, land of the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaties, bringing stories old and new of Lakota values, courage, respect, wisdom, to name a few. Well, hello, this is Lakota Link coming to you from the Dakota Territories. And I would like to introduce you to Tiffany Hale. She happens to be from New York City, and she is an assistant professor at a college there. And I would like her to kind of tell a little bit about her background and and how we got acquainted, because I kind of end up meeting the most intelligent, interesting people and out of the blue, so to speak. And, and it was so it was it's always fun for me to uh, get acquainted with somebody from New York City, for heaven's sake. So Tiffany, would you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes. So thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor to be able to talk to you today and, you know, to pick up on conversations that we started having a few I guess it's been a few weeks now, right? Yes, it's almost um, been a, a couple of months, I think. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, it's been a strange co- stretch of time. But so, just a little bit about me: I'm um, an assistant professor in the religion department at Barnard College, which is part of Columbia University here in New York. So I live in New York City, although um, not from here originally. So I'm still getting bit acquainted and used to to used to big city life. I have a PhD in history, uh, which I just uh, completed in 2017. I'm originally from New Mexico. I've lived in Virginia and North Carolina and California Um, and now New York and, you know, Connecticut, too. So it's been an interesting uh, non-linear journey. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I think that's great, because I think when you're young, that's a time to be adventurous and to be able to just pick up and move and and do what you your heart tells you to. So would you please explain to them a little bit about how you and I got acquainted? Yes, this was a surprise for me too. I I was um, doing some, you know, working on my turning my dissertation project into a book manuscript, and in doing that, I I came back to a primary source that I had located in the library at Yale University. I guess that would have been back in 2014, 2015, maybe. And uh, the archivist there, uh, George Miles, told me about a memoir that. He wasn't too sure about where it had, you know, what the provenance of it was or too much about it. Um, But he asked me to take a look at it. There had been another grad student there at Yale University named um, Ryan Hall, who was also familiar with it. 
And so I, I read it and it really stood out to me as an interesting, you know, really interesting historical source. And so the name of that, on, at least on the cover of it, was um, Alex Charging Crow. And I, um, in revising my first chapter, I started thinking, you know, about people, especially mixed race people in about 1860s, mid 1860s, right around the time of the Civil War in Indian country. And I remembered Alex Charging Crow's memoir is, was part of that, you know, gave some insight into that. And so I was thinking about that and doing some research online. And I, you know, um, connected some dots that he was related to David Adams, a fur trader from Chadron, Nebraska. And so I had visited Chadron. I visited the Museum of the Fur Trade. I was starting to kind of see the landscape of, you know, the people and uh, who's involved. And in putting together a little presentation, I started just searching on the Internet for pictures, perhaps of David Adams or perhaps of, um, you know, I knew it was kind of a long shot because he was around in the 1830s, 1840s. But I thought I would just try. (laughs) And to my surprise, your uh, your website came up and there's some really beautiful images there, not of David Adams, but of his wife and of his son. See, it was. It was his son. Yeah, Alex Adams. And yes, the image I had, I got from my Uncle Ray, and it was of Alex uh, and my mom and her uh, cousin, Marcella Big Crow, and Sydney at a mills were all standing in front of him, and they were just little. And so I'm thinking that picture probably... I, I'm guessing was in 1930 or so. Wow! And so you're that's your great grandfather. Yes, right? yes, and and yeah. uh, in the picture he was wearing a buffalo hat, which I thought was really cool. You know. You know, I never anticipated being able to locate a picture of you know Alex of Alex Adams. Like I, I didn't know what I would find really, but I wasn't. In, you know, um, I was just so excited when I found your site and, uh, you know, the beautiful images of his mother and then also of his wife, you know, really filled in the um, bigger story on this person. And um, so I reached out to you on your website and that's how we got in touch. And this has always amazed me because I've had people reach out from New York before in different places in the nation, and I'm always like, wow, how do you get a hold of me? But <laughs> it's the internet thing. <laughs> so, so yeah, and so, you know, it was really interesting to me, too, to learn more about him. So that's how we got acquainted, and Tiffany, Tiffany is such a brilliant young lady, and, and I thought that in this time right now with the virus and her living in New York, I thought it might be real interesting for my listeners to get a little perspective on how it is there, because um, I can tell you plenty about how it is for us here in South Dakota. You know, we, like, I'm looking out my window right now, and we have five acres, and we're not right close to our neighbors and we have plenty of food in our pantry and in our 
deep freezes and stuff, but you know, still a loneliness there that I I'm not really a person that hugs people, but now I'm having this big desire to to hug my <laughs> my kids and my grandkids just because I know I can't. So tell Definitely. me tell me Tiffany how things you know, tell me about your where you where you're living and how things are impacting you there. Yeah, so this has really been an interesting couple of weeks in New York City, for sure. And I appreciate you asking, you know, because I, when I first moved to New York, I was really feeling pretty overwhelmed with the pace of life and, you know, having to, I'd sold my car, so I walk everywhere I go. And I've been a runner for most of my life, so Running on top of the walking, you know, was a whole lot to get used to here. And and right as soon as I felt like I was starting to kind of ease into that life, that new sort of lifestyle, that new routine, things really changed drastically. And so I believe it was about a month ago now, right? Like March, I remember March 13th. I remember that day, you know, it was one of the last days I think I was on campus um, in my office even and you know, the newspaper was starting to, the New York Times was starting to report on, you know, what kind of food you should stock up on in your pantry and and that kind of thing. And so I live in a, a small apartment, you know, uh, like most New York uh, City residents, I, I live in a one-bedroom apartment and there really isn't a lot of room to, to stash food, oh. <laughs> right, or to stash anything. So I have a... a um, had to get kind of creative or thinking about, you know, logistically what, how to even, you know, what to buy and then how to carry it. You know, all of a sudden the questions like, do you really want to take a cab? Right. Or is it still safe to take the subway? You know, at this point, really not that many people in New York city are taking the subway unless they're, unless they rely on it to get to a, their, their job, which has to be an essential, you know, uh, they have to be an essential part of the workforce. So, you know, I, I um, just right as that was starting to to happen, I I bought a bike. Oh, good. I thought, yeah, I was like, you know, there's a bike shop right downstairs from my apartment. Um, I live on about 110th Street on the north side of Central Park in uh, sort of the south part of Harlem and Morningside Heights area. And I thought, well, if I if I can't take the subway and I can't rely on cabs like at least be able to ride on my bike and you know get beyond my neighborhood if if and when I needed to do that so that's been one big change and you know it's much much quieter the streets are almost empty and it's you know it's a bit surreal I mean the first this for the first time really I've seen it New Yorkers are greeting one another (laughs) we're famous for walking right past you know and if you're in a huge crowd of people it's easy to be anonymous and not you know it's almost considered rude to make eye contact in the subway and you know that's really changed I noticed people saying you know hello to each other and observing this you know trying to trying to observe that six foot gap right for social distancing which sometimes in the park for example it'll be just thousands of people, you know, walking or running or jogging or riding their bikes. And so you actually do have to be really aware of where you are in, in relation to other people. I 
I'm a person that thinks about food a lot. And yeah. so I'm wondering how far is like, is there little grocery stores like close by or how, how does that work? There, there is. So um, right downstairs from my building, thankfully, there is a, a smallish, medium-sized grocery store. And, you know, a few blocks away, there's a Trader Joe's. And then another few blocks away, there's another grocery store. And each of these places usually is really, really busy, especially on the weekends. And so they can't allow those crowds to happen inside the stores anymore. And so they're there are lines outside that kind of sneak around the buildings in some cases to, to keep people six feet apart. And then, you know, there's somebody usually at the front door who tells you when it's okay to go in. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so far we haven't had that here, you know, but then our population of course is a lot less and stuff. And I happen to live in a town that's, Oh, right around 10,000. And okay, so, you know, but be, being older, a Lakota elder, I, <laughs> my husband and I, we, you know, we're pretty well, we, we just, I think, started our quarantine a little bit earlier than a lot of people around here, simply because of mm. being older and being more aware of, mm-hmm. of things. But uh, thank, thank the Lord so far, West River, South Dakota's kind of, well, we have the Missouri River in between, and that we call it East River and West River. East River's a little more populated, quite a bit, and West River's more country, uh, and so kind of really different, actually. Uh, I could go yeah. into I could go a lot more into that, but I won't. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, can can you tell me a little bit? You told me that you had uh, visited Pine Ridge, and can you tell me a little bit about that trip? Yeah, so this was in let's see, I went the first time in twenty. Oh, I hope I don't get this wrong. I think it was twenty seventeen. Yeah, because then the next year was the 150th anniversary of the treaty oh, in Fort Laramie okay. in 2018. Yeah, so that first trip was, um, I was just wrapping up uh, graduate school and had the opportunity to to go and kind of drive through that area with some other scholars who were working on Lakota history and history of the histories of the Great Plains. And um, it was really, you know, it started out in Nebraska, actually, at the State Historical Society there, you know, looking at archives, looking through pictures, and really part of that visit was um, visiting archives at tribal colleges as well. And so I think the first trip to Pine Ridge was OLC, Oglala Lakota College, sure, uh, up to Standing Rock as well, and um, Sitting Bull College there. And really just met some great people, you know, some archivists and elders and, you know, people who were just, you know, just as interested in the history as, you know, as I was and were willing to share and and to talk about that. And so it was really a beautiful visit. Uh, I think about the stereotype of the stoic Indian and, you know, you having visited, you know that 
we <laughs> we are ones to laugh and joke a lot, and so it's not. So uh, I'm glad that you was welcome. What did you think? What do you think you uh, mainly learned from that experience? You know, I um, I had never been there before, and it was interesting because you know I moved all around the country and lived in lots of different places, and I remember kind of crossing over um, the Nebraska-South Dakota border, which I'd really done a lot of research on those small towns in Nebraska, like Shadron and uh, Valentine. Um, I'd been tracing kind of where the railroad went and some of those transportation routes and also points of um, contact for the media in those areas. And so it was really beautiful to kind of be in a place that I had kind of only read about and, and you know, learned about from old maps and um, archives. And one of the things that I was surprised by was how it felt very, I guess, almost familiar. Like it just reminded me of being in Indian country, um, kind of like being in New Mexico. Oh, you yes. know, I. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like once you're just in Indian country, it just feels a certain way. And I, I suppose I wasn't, I don't know, I wasn't anticipating that for it to feel kind of like familiar in that way. Does that make sense? Sure. And, you know, we travel, uh, when I had my gallery, we would go down to New Mexico and Arizona. And, you know, one thing I really like to do is go to the reservations. And mm-hmm. um, it if what happened was often there would be a connection. Somebody had moved from South Dakota down there or something, and and the feeling yeah. is home like and stuff. Uh, another question I have is about music. How that has has that played a part in how you're handling this quarantine sort of thing? Yes. And so, you know, music, I think, um, I think I've been thinking a lot about lately, actually, you know, back in uh, January at the American History um, Association conference, which happened to be in New York that this year, they did a, a film screening of that uh, movie Rumble. And I think it's called Indians Who Rock the World. And so I had never seen that, but I was familiar to an extent with some of that history. And, you know, I'm starting to revise my dissertation and thinking about my book manuscript and music for me has been just, it's like this, I feel like it's almost like another language, you know, and um, there's certain things that you can only express in music, like you can only express with painting or through poetry. And that's just been a, a source of inspiration, you know, and sometimes, you know, when it gets real busy and you're teaching and you've got errands and you know life and the pace is is a little bit hectic it can be hard to carve out time to listen to music especially to find new music what kind of music do you like you know i i like all kinds of music but you know just in this past few weeks with the coronavirus i've been trying to educate myself a little more about jazz and early kind of jazz um 1950s and 60s you know, into the 70s a little bit. And so much of that history is here in New York. Um, to really have the time to kind of just focus and listen, you know, has been an exciting 
new phase and I actually do think it's helping me with my writing <laughs> you know it's hard to sometimes place like where that you know where that stream of you know inspiration is coming from but you know hearing and and also tracing some of the stories of the jazz musicians like I was reading I was watching a film about Miles Davis and how he was from East St. Louis you know a place which is really right by the Mississippi River. I, re- I visited through there. There's the Cahokia um, National Park, which is an old, you know, mound, part of the old mound building um, history of that area. And he grew up just a few miles away from that, ended up in New York City. And, you know, I was listening to his uh, first album. And it's really just so kind of complex and so beautiful, you know. And we think sometimes these things are only city stories, but they're connecting you know, places all over the map, actually. Well, this is something you and I share in the respect that I love music. I, when I'm, I would say almost every day I listen to music. It helps me with my mood. And when I go mm-hmm. to do my artwork, instead of like somber, quiet, peaceful music, I like loud rock and roll. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah, I do. But it's the old time rock and roll. It's Jerry Lee Lewis and Elvis Presley. And, yeah. and um, it gets me going. And when you see my artwork, uh, you can kind of tell <laughs> that's part that of it. That's so interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, I was just reading a little or um, studying the map to um of uh, the Southeast, which is where both sides of my um, dad's family come from, and Tupelo, Mississippi. I didn't know this, but Elvis was from Tupelo, Mississippi. I'm sure there's lots of Elvis fans who already knew that, but, you know, um, he's part of that kind of Delta, you know, Mississippi Delta patchwork of people, Well, which I, is a yeah, interesting, yeah. Actually, you know, I've, you know, read a, up a lot about him and, and seen documentaries, and he got his ways about him from from the communities that he grew up in. And I thought that was pretty cool. And, of course, Jerry Lee Lewis also, you know, all those down south boys seem to yeah. <laughs> have that same flair. <laughs> so, yeah. so what more, uh, I mean, how, I guess maybe, and perhaps you answered this before, but... I just want to clarify it in my own mind. How did you get interested in the Native American culture? Yeah, so I, um, like I said, I was, I was born in New Mexico. I was born in a town called Gallup, New Mexico. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people familiar with Indian country would know about Gallup. Oh, yes. We, moved- <laughs> we, we, we would go to Gallup all the time. And um, I don't know when... You've been back there, but have you ever gone to that flea market they have? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. (laughs) When, when, you know, some of the people I did business with, you know, uh, said we had to go there. And I was amazed. They had windshields. They had parrots. (laughs) They had everything to sell there. And it was so interesting. Yep. I do remember that flea market even from when I was a little kid. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> I'm so, go, I mean, <laughs> go, go ahead <laughs> well 
I mean, it's, you know, it's an interesting, you know, town to be. And I, I think it really, I, I, we moved away when I was pretty young and um, my dad was a truck driver. So we kind of moved, now that I look at a map, I'm like, we moved all along Route 66 or I-40, you know. Um, and when I get packages, even still in New York City, I, I'll sometimes track the packaging and it'll go through like all these towns that I've lived in. <laughs> <laughs> so this Gallup experience, can you go ahead on that? Yeah, so yeah, so we I didn't grow up there for very long, you know. We moved um moved around quite a bit and but I think it always kind of stuck out in my mind, you know, those were my early sort of memories and experiences were being in Indian country. And then, you know, it wasn't until we moved to Southern California when I was about 14 or so um after living in the southeast and you know, there's a lot of racism and lots of, you know, issues going on in the South um, at that time. My parents are interracially married. And so that made it especially we were very visible, you know, in places in the South. But California is a little different. You know, it was a little more um, ethnically diverse and racially diverse. And there were still problems and tensions. Um, but there was a big urban Indian community uh, in that part of Southern California, which for me was near I went to Bloomington High School, which is a small town near Riverside and San Bernardino. And so, you know, those urban, uh, that sort of more urban Indian uh, community was really influential and welcoming uh, to me in, as I was, you know, as, as a young adolescent and helped me to really prioritize and think about history and how Native history isn't really part of the mainstream you know, there's a lot of aspects of Native history uh, that are sort of invisible and that, you know, deserve much more attention and, you know, that we need storytellers to talk about that. And so, you know, for me, it, that involved a long journey, a long, long process of thinking about my own ancestors, my own um, relationship to place and, you know, to other people and, so, so this is work I was doing, you know, while a student and it's actually still going on. Right. So I, you know, my family, the stories were always that, you know, we're African-American on my dad's side and, and Native American, possibly Cherokee, you know, but because that side of my family involves some enslaved people, it's really hard to trace, you know, exactly who they were, where they were from. And so just recently, I was doing some more digging, at least on that side of my family. And one branch, it turns out, it seems to have had a connection to Cuba. Wow. Yeah, that was totally unexpected. You know, I hadn't heard anything about that from my relatives growing up or anything. But it said in the, and this was in a book that um, a distant cousin of mine had published, but she said that two brothers were brought as slaves from Cuba to Mississippi in about the 1850s. And so that one of them stayed uh, after emancipation in 18, you know, 1860s. And then another, the other brother went back to Cuba. And so that would have been my great, great, I think my third great grandfather. So there's just, you know, these mysteries, right, that are still kind of uh, popping up, even at this stage of my life, which I think is, you know, really a blessing. And, um, I feel very fortunate to have the chance to, you know, try to look and try to dig for uh, more information about the past and about their lives. I I find this real interesting. Uh, 
I've always said to myself, I would have liked to have been a private eye, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I wasn't. But I do like that aspect of digging and finding out stuff. That, and that's going to be part of Lakota Links too. Is is the um, aspect of d- doing old time stories that might be lost, and mm. I and I will say uh, now I'm I'm thinking we're. We'll say goodbye, but um, I will say uh, thank you, Tiffany. And I think one of the values that Lakota values that you have is maybe is wisdom. And, you know, wisdom doesn't have to be for the elderly. It can be for younger people that that have the wisdom to to value these things that happened a long time ago and and are happening right now. And so I, I really do thank you for uh, being on Lakota Link. Thank you so much, Danny. It's really an honor. You know, it's been an honor to get to know you and such a pleasure to talk with you today. Well, I hope you enjoyed our segment. You know, I, I enjoy visiting with the people. And if you did go to sandyswallowgallery.com where you can find my artwork and find some history and some background. Please subscribe to it or if you have some comments, we would love to hear your opinion. This is a new adventure for us and I value your opinion. This song is written and sung by my good friend Quincy Goodstar. Lakota Link is here to share Lakota values. God bless you on your journey. Wopila, thank you for joining us.